My favorite verses there in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God. It doesn't tell us that we cannot please him, but without faith we cannot. We must come to him by faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God, but he that cometh to him must believe that he is and rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The interesting things, Tim gave several examples of faith where the Lord found little faith, no faith, great faith. And these persons that he found these different degrees of faith in were not the unregenerate. They were his children. They were his disciples who had seen so much and witnessed so much. And that's the way it is with me, and I'm sure it is with you. Our faith kind of goes up and down sometimes, doesn't it? But if we diligently seek him, the Lord is a rewarder of them that do that. So let's strive to be a diligent seeker of the things of God. I'd like to read to you this morning the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The Apostle Peter brings up the subject here of being born again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by an incorruptible seed, but the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. How many times do you reckon the expression born again is found in the Bible? We hear it quite often, do we not? Well, if I was to tell you it's found three times. Well, it's found three times. <laughs> and twice in one setting. The other two times is found in John chapter 3 when Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus. So twice Jesus used the expression in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. And the apostle Peter used it once here. It's the only time that expression is used in the Bible. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by an incorruptible seed, which by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We have two seeds brought to our attention here. We have a corruptible seed and we have an incorruptible seed. Your first birth by nature was based upon a corruptible seed. But thank God your second birth, the new birth, being when you were born again, was by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. And if you notice in the verses I read that the word of God is mentioned more than once. In the scriptures we find where the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of as the word of God. He's the eternal word of God. 1 John 5, 7, the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, spelled with a capital W, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the words were with God, and the Word was God. Not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God, the second person of Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is represented here by the Word, was God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. That's a positive and a negative. He presents this truth both ways. All things were made by Him, positive. And without him was not anything made. That's the negative. If you don't get it one way, perhaps you'll get it the other. And that word is the only word that lives. Jesus Christ is that eternal word that lives and all life comes from him. Now there's the written word. 
2 Timothy 3.16, and all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, righteousness. The man of God might be perfect through the furnished in all good works. But there's no life in the written word. The written word is about the living word. Okay? So Paul writes in Romans 15 and 4 the things written aforetime. That's the scriptures written for our learning. And we through patience come to the scriptures might have hope. And then there's the what we might call the gospel word. Whenever I attempt to preach the gospel to you, if the Lord blessed me to do so, and other men that stand here, they're speaking to you from the written word. That's why Paul told Timothy, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Preach the word. Preachers are to preach the word. They're to preach the written word, which is the revelation of the living word. So he says you're born again, not of corruptible seed, showing the second birth is totally different than the first birth, but by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God, that's the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, which liveth and abideth forever. Now Peter's not writing to those here as individuals who had not experienced being born again. They had certainly had that experience. As you go back and read who he's writing to in the first chapter, he's writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. And these strangers was God's people who had been scattered because of persecutions. He further identifies them as saying the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. These are God's elect. God's people referred to as the elect of God in numerous places because that's exactly how they became God's children based upon election, unconditional election. Before time began, they were chosen in Christ. Out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people that makes up his family and they're referred to as the elect. Romans 8, 32, Paul asked the question, who shall lay anything to the charge of who? God's elect. It's God's elect that Jesus died for. So who can lay any charge to the charge of God's elect? He says, God that justifies. That's why you can't lay a charge to the elect of God. They've been justified in the sight of God through that one offering, that one sacrifice we mentioned in the very beginning that the Lord Jesus Christ made. Colossians 3.12, put on therefore as the elect of God. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 4, Knowing, brother, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not to you in word only, but it came in power and the Holy Ghost in much assurance. If you're a sincere, serious Bible reader, you have to come to grips with the doctrine of election. It's there. It's recorded 27 times in the Word of God. It's there. So what is it saying? What is it meaning? Well, here the Apostle Peter's writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And he mentions here in this verse 23, records in verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, the other time, again, this expression is used is over in the third chapter of John when Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus. Let's, let's go over there just for a little bit. When you go to John chapter 3, it's important you know who is speaking who is talking here, who is the Lord interacting with. And the Bible tells us in the beginning of John chapter 3, some man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Pharisees. That tells me he was high up, he, a man in a position of power and authority. Perhaps he was one of the rulers in the synagogues. 
But nevertheless, we know that Nicodemus was a very important person among the Pharisees of that day. Now, the Pharisees that day were actually looked up to. They were one of the, just one of several religious uh, sects, you might say, among the Jewish people in that day. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes. Now, they're not mentioned in the Scripture, but historically, they existed. And so the Pharisees, uh, of course, were addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 23 as being hypocrites. They were very self-righteous. They wore their religion rather than living their religion. But they were looked up by the Jewish people in that particular day. And Nicodemus is an exception to some degree to what I just said about the Pharisees. But he was a Pharisee. He was identified as a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Jews. And he came to the Lord Jesus Christ by night. It was not a popular thing to be associated with Jesus, especially if he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were among his, among his most vocal critics. They were always criticizing the Lord Jesus Christ. They were always trying to discredit him for things that he did. Remember when he performed a miracle, they said he did it by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They said he cast out devils by the prince of devils. Now, how, how absurd is that? And the Lord showed that absurdity when he said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It'd be foolish to think that Satan would cast out devils when he's a devil himself. But that's what they said about the Lord Jesus Christ. They called him a liar. They called him a fornicator. The Pharisees were his chiefest critics during his earthly life and earthly ministry. But here comes a Pharisee at nighttime, I'm sure because he didn't want any attention drawn to the very fact that he was approaching this man named Jesus. And he said unto Jesus, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. He addressed him as master. That's interesting. Because you didn't get the title of master unless you, you might say, had a degree from the higher institutions of learning among the Jewish people that day. And Jesus certainly didn't have that. There were times when they wondered when Jesus spoke. And they wondered, they said, how knoweth this man letters? How, how, how can this man speak with such power and authority when he has no credentials? <laughs> can you imagine saying Christ had no credentials? Christ uh, uh, had nothing to back this up, but when he spoke, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, we find where it says, Never man spake like this man spake. And so he says, We know. He addressed him as Master. Master, we know that no man can do the miracles thou doest, except God be with him. Thought a teacher come from God. He recognized he was a teacher come from God. And at this point here, everything that Nicodemus has said is a fact, is true. He was a teacher that come from God. But there are a number of teachers in that day, you might say, that could say they came from God, but none like this man. Never man spake like this man spake. So after he gets through saying this, in verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ tells Nicodemus, he's in verily, verily, which means truly, truly, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now here we find where the Lord brings in one of the exceptions we find in the Bible. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There's no other way a man can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. Nicodemus was a little confused about the, this here. He said, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb the second time? He, he's thinking natural things. He's thinking, uh, how can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Even if it were possible, that wouldn't change anything. Of course, we know that's impossible. So the Lord spoke to him again in verse 5. And he said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of the water, of water and of the Spirit, which means the water, even the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, 
we find that he uses language that a Jewish Pharisee would understand. If you go back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, you will find in verses 25 and 26 where the Lord says to Israel, I will sprinkle water upon you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from your idols. And I will also take out your heart and stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. Now this is a picture of what regeneration does. Regeneration takes out the hard and stony heart of your human nature and gives you a heart of flesh that can understand the things of God. Only God can perform this operation. And this operation has been being performed ever since Adam, after he transgressed God's law. God's never lost a case. How about that? Uh, if you want to talk about a great physician, we got one to talk about. We got one that's been performing heart surgery since the beginning of time, never lost a case. He's always taken that hard and stony heart out, replaced the heart of flesh, but notice there's a cleansing that takes place when that happens. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking to Titus about in Titus 3, 5, where he says, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When a person is regenerated, when a person is born again, there's a washing, there's a cleansing of the soul of the inner man because that's an incorruptible seed that's been planted within his heart and a divine nature has been given unto him. It's exactly what the Lord is talking about when he makes this statement to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have, in, would have uh, understood something about that. Water was used abundantly in the Old Testament for cleansing. The high priest, when he, or rather the priest, when they would go into the tabernacle, uh, there was the brazen altar where the offering, the, the lambs was slain. The offering was going to be prepared and the bullock or the lamb was slain there. And then before the priest could take the blood of that offering into the tabernacle proper, he had to pass by the brazen laver where he had to wash in that. He cannot go further without being cleaned. All the utensils, all the things that was involved in the tabernacle were cleansed by water. Water was used in many different ways to cleanse things because only God will accept that which is clean. Now, when the apostle Peter here says, you're born again, not of corruptible seed. Before we go any further with Nicodemus' conversation with the Lord, let's just take a look at that expression of corruptible seed and see how corrupt that corruptible seed is. In the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 4, the question is asked, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And the answer is given to us, not one. You think about it. You got something that's unclean. How are you going to bring something clean out of something that's unclean? The answer is very obvious, isn't it? And we come to Psalm, excuse me, Job 25. In the middle of this psalm, he's going to ask the question, he says, how can man be clean that's born of a woman? He starts off saying, how can man be justified in God? That's the question. Then he says, how can man be clean that's born of a woman? And there's no way anybody's ever been born other than that. So a man that's born of a woman is not clean. Therefore, how can man be justified in the sight of God? Well, the Apostle Paul will answer that in his writings in the New Testament. I've already mentioned Romans 8, 32, where he says, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified. That's how man will be justified in the sight of God. God must justify him. It must be God that declares him innocent and righteous and holy. 
man on his own cannot do that. When he's born of a woman, he takes on the nature of humanity. And that nature of humanity is a nature of corrupt, corruption. Let's take a look at his mind, for example. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, he says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. That means an enemy against God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Therefore, they which are the flesh cannot please God. I remember reading a debate between Elder C.H. Casey, who was the first pastor of this church in 1915, debating with those who promoted a free will doctrine. He just stuck on Romans 8.8. He just stayed right there. He would never let them get away from Romans 8.8. No matter what they said, he brought right back to Romans 8.8. He that's in the flesh cannot please God. No matter what they said, he said, Paul said, they in the flesh cannot please God. (laughs) He wouldn't let them loose. (laughs) He has got one verse there and wouldn't let them loose. It's like that one stone out of five that was uh, hurled by, you know, David and hit the forehead of Goliath. He had five stones, but he only needed one. And Brother Casey only needed one in this particular debate. <laughs> they in the flesh cannot please God. He just wouldn't let them get away from it. Really interesting. So that's the mind. What about the heart? See, when God created man, he gave him a mind. He gave him intellect. Something he, he gave man something he did not give the animals. And he gave him a heart. So what's the condition of the heart? Psalms 14, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Found also recorded Psalms 53 1, twice. We look over here in Psalm, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 17 9, and he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's the condition of man's heart by nature. It's desperately wicked, it's deceitful. Your heart will deceive you. Who can know it? Who can really trust it? In other words, you can't trust your heart. Sometimes people say, well, you just got to trust your heart. No, you don't. That's the worst thing you can do is trust your heart. <laughs> We're told in the book of Proverbs, he that trusts his heart is a fool. So he's saying right in his heart, there is no God. You remember, I'm sure you've heard the story of where the atheist was complaining they didn't have a holiday like the Christians have all their holidays. And the judge said, well, you're wrong. You got one. It's April the 1st, Fool's Day, April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day says that fool has said in his heart, there is no God. April 1st is the holiday of the atheist. There's his heart. And then God gave man a will. Now people talk about everybody's got a free will. Man's will is free in the natural realm, but the natural realm only, there is a limitation to it. Man's will cannot go beyond his nature. There are things you might will to do, you just simply cannot do. I might climb on top of this building and when I get ready to get, go down, uh, I might uh, say, well, I don't think I want to climb the ladder uh, back down. I think I'll just jump off and float down. I don't think I can do that. Do you? I don't think I can float down. I cannot fly on my own power. I have to get on an airplane if I'm going to fly. I just can't sprout wings and fly. We're bound. Man's will is enslaved by sin. He's bound in the bondage of sin and his depravity. Let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. For the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, the purpose of God according to election might stand. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteous with God? God forbid, for it's not of him that willeth. 
know of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. That's plain, isn't it? Paul says, it's not of him that willeth. Jesus addressed some Jews in John 5 and 40, and he says, ye will not come unto me. Here's the will not. It's not a matter of being willing, it's a matter of will not. You will not come to me. And then I look at John 1 and 13, a verse is oftentimes left out when people go to verse 11. We'll go to verse 11. We find here it says, For he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name who were born. Now notice, those that believed on his name were born. All right, those who received him were born. Now in contrast to that, you've got 1 Corinthians 2.14, when Paul says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man cannot receive. Somebody's receiving over here in John 1, 11 and 12. They're receiving and they're believing. Why? Because they were born. He says they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The birth come from God. Notice what it didn't come from. It born not of blood. That means it's not something that is hereditary. You can't be born again that way. Nor the will of the flesh. You're not born, as, again, based upon human relationships. Nor the will of man. Nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not based upon human decision, in other words. He tells you three ways those under consideration were not born. Then he tells you how they were born. They were born of God. God's the source of the new birth. God's the source of being born again. We see his mind. We see his heart. We see his will and his, his nature in general. Look in Romans 3 and 10, and Paul says, There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. If God lifted up the man, nobody would seek him, nobody would live righteously, and nobody would be good. Fear of God is not before them. You go ahead and read the rest of those verses there. The poison of acid is under his lips. When they speak, both cursing and bitterness come forth from their language, from their words. Boy, do we see that today in society. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is a description of mankind in his depraved condition because he was conceived and born of a corruptible seed. So how can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean? You cannot. Here's a glass of water. I can take one drop of poison, just one drop's all that's needed, and put in that glass of water. You tell me what percentage of that water now is clean and what percentage is unclean. Are you willing to drink three-fourths of it, thinking you may have just got the clean and left the unclean in there? I don't think so. I, don't, I, I, I give everybody more uh, credit for your intelligence than that. When that drop went in there, it saturated that water. That entire glass of water became poisonous. How are you going to bring a clean thing out of an unclean? In the book of 2 Samuel 14, 14, the writer says, As water spilt upon the ground which cannot be gathered up, so the Lord has devised a means where his, his people should not be banished. Now, first, I just want the first part of that. He says, Water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up. Have you ever spilt a glass of water on the ground that you were looking forward to drinking it? Did you try to get it up out of the dirt? Did you try to recover it out of the soil? 
The illustration is clear, is it not? It's very clear. Water cannot be gathered up. If it's spilt on the ground, it cannot be gathered up. That shows the inability of man to recover himself from the fall. He can no more recover himself than you can get water that now has been spilt on the ground and soaked into the soil. Jeremiah 23, 13. The question is asked, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? The question is asked, can the leopard change his spots? See, a leopard has spots that identifies him as a leopard. That's a characteristic of his nature and all, right? And Ethiopian skin is dark. Can Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No, the Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin. And a leopard cannot change his spots. And water cannot be gathered up again that's been spilt on the ground. The Bible not only gives us truth in the word, the Bible as a rule gives us illustrations of those truths. So we're talking about man's inability, talking about man's depravity, we're talking about the corruptible seed that affects his mind, affects his heart, affects his will, affects his nature in every single way. Man is vile, man is corrupt, man is depraved totally and completely. There's no part of man, his mind, his heart, his soul, his will, or whatever, that was not affected by the fall. We look at Romans 5.12. Wherefore, by one man sinned into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We find death to be in the picture. Death means separation. When a man is dead, a man is dead. A person is dead, a person is dead. They have no ability to think, no ability to feel, no ability to see, hear, touch, taste, or anything. They're just simply dead. That's man in his nature. How corrupt is man? Well, I hope you begin to get the picture here this morning. Man is vile and man is corrupt. Man will not seek God. Let's go 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him. And neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I've given this illustration before. But I liken a natural man to an AM radio. And I liken the spiritual man to an FM radio. And if you're trying to get FM signals, you cannot do it if you only have an AM radio. Yes, there was a time... Uh, younger people, that radios were only AM. <laughs> That's right. It was only AM stations. Now, there's all kind of signals floating through here this morning in this building. Airways, one thing or another. You can't see them, but they're there. And I could turn on the radio, and I could get an AM station by putting a dial on the AM. But to get an FM, I'm going to have to turn it over here. And the natural man only has an AM receiving set. That's all he's got. He cannot receive the FM signal sent down from heaven by God himself. That requires a receiving set that has the ability to receive FM signals. So to receive the things of God, which is the gospel, the word of God, the things of the spirit of God, whatever they might be, a person must already be born of the spirit of God before he can understand them. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, and they'll always be foolishness unto him in his unregenerate state. Neither can he know them. It shows the impossibility of it. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood, and he has no spirit about him that's of God. He's got the spirit of man, but he doesn't have the spirit of God. It's one of the most important things there is in the Bible to try to see and understand You'll never appreciate the doctrine of election unless you see the doctrine of man's depravity. Well, for not God's electing grace. God's electing grace does not omit people. It's the only thing that includes people. 
It's not exclusion, it's inclusion. It's the only reason God, God has a family, because God purposed to have a family. He chose a family in Christ before the foundation of the world. But when Adam transgressed God's law, God's family fell in the law of sin and death, just like everybody else did. Therefore, requiring a Savior. And the Savior's name was Jesus, and Jesus came in this world. And by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, Hebrews 10 and 14. Now, we looked at man's will just a little bit while ago. It's not of him that willeth. These people were born not of, of the blood, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. They were born of God. In contrast, look at God's will. Ephesians 1, 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. John 6, 38 and 39. The Lord said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. I like those wills. And then I look in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He says, Lo, I come, and then in parentheses, in the volume of the book, it's written to me. Talking about the Old Testament. It was written concerning the Lord and Jesus Christ. Behold, I come, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. I come to do thy will, O God. God has a will, the Son has a will, the will of the Son and the will of the Father are one and the same. How do you like those will in contrast to our will? Our will is we won't come to God. Our will is confined only to the natural realm prior to being born of the Spirit of God. Once you've been born of the Spirit of God, now you enter into a brand new world with a brand new nature, a divine nature that has a will associated with that. When the Bible speaks about being born again, if you go back to John 3, 3 and read the center reference of your Bible, it'll tell you it means being born from above. That means your, your new birth is vertical. The natural man, our natural birth is horizontal. This birth must come from above. It must be supernatural. In contrast to the natural, to the expected, to the biological, even that, how miraculous is that? Every time a baby is born, it's kind of interesting how everybody thinks a baby is so glorious. <laughs> There's, they got a sinful nature right there, and they don't obtain that sinful nature down the road. They obtain that, central, uh, sensor, that sinful nature because of you. <laughs> you passed it along. You passed it along to the, to the baby. When the baby was conceived, your nature, your corrupt, vile, sinful nature was passed on to them. Oh, I know it's a great noise. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it is a noise. But anyway, a great sound to hear that baby cry once it's been born. But I'm going to tell you, after two or three days, they get their nights and days mixed up. It's not so wonderful anymore. It doesn't take long for a baby to manifest its depraved nature. It'll cry when nothing's wrong with it. To get your attention, it deceives you. <laughs> it does. But I'm telling you, when a baby is born, everybody makes over, everybody wants to hold it in one thing and another. You can take a baby into a, a nursing home and all the older people just bring it over here, bring it over here, let me see it, let me touch it, let me feel it. <laughs> Somehow or another, when it gets a little older, all that desire fades away. <laughs> get him out of here. <laughs> When a person's born of the Spirit, notice Galatians 4.4. 4. 
When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that was under the law. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, and your heart's crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Father. You're crying, Father, Father. When you're born in the Spirit, you cry out to God the Father, just like when you was born in this world, and you begin to cry out. Oh, that's a manifestation of life, isn't it? Uh, when a baby cries, you know, it makes you feel good. You, you feel like, well, there's, there's life there. It wasn't stillborn. There's life there. It, it makes you rejoice to hear that sound. But the Bible uses various terms to describe that. Or it used one in, in the Titus, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy hath saved us by the washing of regeneration. In Colossians 1 and 15, he says that God had translated us out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Now I want you to notice something here. This kingdom of consideration here, you're translated into it. Now I come up here to Luke 16, 32. Uh, 16, 16, brother, and the Lord Jesus Christ said, For the prophets and the law and the prophets were unto John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presseth into it. Here's an aspect of the kingdom. To get into it, you've got to press into it. Over in Colossians 1 and 15, you're translated into it. That's God's eternal kingdom. Every child of grace will be translated in that kingdom. But in his gospel kingdom here, if you get into it, you have to press into it. That requires obedience and action on your behalf, you see. Ephesians 2, 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespassing sins. The word quicken here shows, uh, is, is a word expressing the new birth, expressing being born again. Quicken, translate, born from above, born again, regeneration. All those are terms. We look in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse uh, 10, and For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. A creature is one that's been created. We do not believe in evolution. We believe in creation both in nature and also in the spirit. A lot of people that would deny evolution by nature don't realize that they are advocating spiritual evolution the way they bring it about. In every case that I've mentioned, there's something they all had in common, whether it's being quickened, whether it's being created, whether it's being regenerated, called, there's another one, called. Look at Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them, are, uh, work together for good to them who uh, love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. Who loves the Lord? Those who are called. Who does all things work together for good for? Those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. And over whom he did pre, uh, for, more of whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son, who might be the firstborn among many brethren. And over whom he did predestinate, them he also called, E.D. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. You notice you got the same number uh, that's being glorified that was foreknown in the beginning. The number neither goes up, the number doesn't come down. Exactly the same. They're called. God has never called at anybody. He simply calls. Fact. When God comes again, the end of time, the resurrection, time shall be no more. And God gathers his family home and takes them into glory. There will not be one person in heaven that did not experience the new birth of being born again while they lived in this world. 
There will not be one person in glory that was born again any differently than one other one. They're all born again the same way. Let's go back to John chapter 3 with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Jesus says unto Nicodemus, marvel not thy sins, you must be born again. That's the second time he said to Nicodemus. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, you hear the sound thereof, knoweth not where it goeth to where it cometh. So is everyone born of the Spirit of God. Three things about that verse. The wind bloweth where it lists, showing the sovereignty of God. Whoever started the wind, whoever stopped the wind, whoever directs the wind. And it's a mystery involved with it, isn't it, also? The wind bloweth where it lists. Did you hear the sound thereof? But knoweth not where it cometh or where it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit of God. No exception. They're all born again, the Spirit of God, exactly the same way. You get away from what I'm talking about here this morning, you're going to find where people have to get people saved in various ways. You've got to figure out a way to save people from Adam to Moses, before the law. You've got to figure out a way to save people from Moses to Christ, under the law. You've got to figure out a way to save people from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ in the gospel dispensation. You've got to figure out a way to save those who are born in the mother's wombs. You've got to figure out a way to save the, the stillborn. You've got to find a way to save the unevangelized. You've got to find a way to save the ignorant. You've got to find a way to save the retarded. I don't know, maybe I should express that a different way. I think it's changed. Now, but anyway, uh, you understand what I'm saying. Okay? I'm telling you about there's just one way. John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come to the Father except by me. John chapter 5 and verse 25, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, let's notice just something about that real quick. Three things about that. Those under consideration are dead. The hour is coming and I ask when the dead, and he's talking about those dead in sin, not dead corporally, physically, but those who are dead in sin. The hour is coming, and now is when the dead should what? Hear the voice of the Son of God, the command of the voice of the Son of God. Just like when Jesus commanded the, the storm at sea to be still, what happened? It became still, did it not? The waves subsided, became calm, the wind quit blowing. That was an act of passive obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ gave the command. And the command was obeyed, just like when God said in Genesis chapter 1, we said, let there be light. The command came, my friends, and light made itself known. That's exactly the way it is. And notice the certainty of it. The hour is coming and as when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. How in the world can dead hear because of the life-giving command of the voice of Jesus Christ? That's how. Jesus gave us three illustrations of that. When he was here, when he raised three different people from the grave. He raised a little maid who was 12 years old that died and Jesus went to the house. When he went to the house, he said this unto her. He said, maid arise. And the maid arose. He went to the grave of a man by the name of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth. He met a widow woman. And those with her taking her, her only son to the cemetery who had just died. And the Lord Jesus Christ interrupted, put his hand on the buyer, that is on the coffin, and said, young man, arise. And the young man arose. In every case, the one he spoke to was dead. 
He didn't give that job to the preachers. You think the preachers could have got that young man to arise? Set up? You think the preachers could have got the young maid or the maid to arise or last come out of that grave? Of course they could not, but Jesus did. And then the Lord said in the case of Lazarus, he told his disciples, you loose him and you let him go. That's something preachers can do. They can try to loose God's people and let them go from the standpoint of discipleship. The call of regeneration being born again is a call to sonship. The gospel calls you to discipleship. That's the vast, the distinct difference between the two. And you've probably heard this before, but I think it's a very significant point. When Jesus was here, he, he healed the blind. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He enabled those who uh, were sick of the palsy to walk again. He cleansed the lepers and he raised the dead. But all the afflicted, the blind, the deaf, all of those, they brought them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never healed them all exactly the same way. Nobody ever brought somebody dead to Jesus. Jesus always went to the dead. And that's the way it is today. It's Jesus that goes to those who are dead in trespass and sin and borns them of the Spirit of God. He speaks personally. He speaks individually. He speaks uh, with, with the command of power. And when he speaks, they hear and they live. Peter says, you're born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorrupt, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal word, my friends? Uh, uh, he gives eternal life. He doesn't offer it, but he gives it. And this source of life here lives and abides forever. Aren't you glad here's something that you can uh, uh, hold on to and grasp to and you can rejoice in and knowing that every child of grace, every elect family of God, every heir of promise, every uh, beloved, uh, every object of God's love, sometime between their conception and their death here in this world will hear the voice of the Son of God. And when they hear the voice of the Son of God, they live. And then they'll be with God in glory, some wonderful and some sweet day. They're all born again exactly the same way. No exceptions. I'm glad I don't have to try to figure out this and figure out that. I just rejoice in the truth of the matter. <laughs> Aren't you glad that you don't have to try to come up with all kind of out of the ordinary and unusual things to try to substantiate a, a point on doctrine? Just preach the doctrine, my friends, and truth of God's sovereign grace. It is sovereign in every sense of the word. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent by his marvelous grace that people are saved and born of the Spirit of God and will be with God in glory some sweet day. We're all going to be there exactly the same way. Say personally and vitally, my friends, we were born of the Spirit and saved legally and representatively on the cross when Jesus Christ laid down his life and paid the sin debt. That's when you were saved legally. That's when your sins were laid aside. That's when the sin debt was paid. That's when the redemptive blood of Christ flowed, brothering, and redeemed you in the sight of God. But then that blood must be applied personally and individually, and it is sometime between your conception and your death. And one other thing, while we're all born the same way, we're not all born at the same age. Have you ever met somebody and they'd tell you, well, I, I feel like I've loved the Lord all the days of my life. I can't remember a time when I didn't love the Lord. I've met people like that. And I've met people who said, I, I care nothing for the things of God. I walked contrary to God and shook my fist toward heaven for years and then God just brought me down to the dust of the earth. 
God gives us three illustrations to help us along those lines. He born John the Baptist of the Spirit of God before he ever saw the light of day. When he was in the womb of Elizabeth, Elizabeth said concerning John, at the force of thy salutation, he leapt for joy in my womb. And you got Saul of Tarsus, that dragon, that fire-breathing dragon that was persecuting God's people in God's church as often as he possibly could. He had letters of authority on the way to the city of Damascus. And the Lord struck him down at the noontime and changed his life all the way around. And then you got that thief hanging on the cross at the 11th hour. When he and the other thief in the beginning had railed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then something took place, something happened. And I tell you what took place, what happened. Hear the voice of the Son of God. That's what happened. The other thief didn't, but this thief did. Jesus spoke that life-giving voice. And that thief, my friends, had a change of heart. A divine nature went inside of him. And then he rebuked the other thief and said, This man has done nothing uh, worthy of death. We are getting what we justly deserve. And he turns to the Savior. And he says unto Jesus, This day remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I could just shout, my friends, for examples of grace like that. Uh, can't you? To know that no case ever gets too far, my friends, that, this, that the grace of God cannot intercept and do something before it's too late. That's why you can never, you can never judge somebody. Never can you judge somebody and say they're not a child of grace, no matter how they've lived, because at the 11th hour, at the 11th hour, my friends, God can bore them in the Spirit of God like he did that thief. I personally believe God borns his people at an early age of where they can serve him, where they can worship him, where they can honor and glorify him here. That's why Solomon said, Remember thy creator in the days of thy youth, when the evil days come not. Let us not wait till we retire in life to decide we're going to try to give our best to God. Let's give it to him now. No, if you're five, if you're 50, or if you're 100, whatever the age might be, I'm going to still try to give him all I got while I'm young. And then the Lord blessed me to become an old man one day, well, then I'm going to try to do my best then. I'll tell this in closing. That brought a smile on his face. But anyway, I'm playing pickleball the other day with a guy I never met before. So he tells me his name. I tell him my name. I said, my name is Ronald or Ron. He says, oh, Ron? I said, no, oh, Ron. <laughs> the very idea. Old Ron. Or, O-R, or Ron. So he, he got the point. 